Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. Welcome to the Wealth Ability Show, where we're always discovering how to make way more money, and pay way less tax. Hi, this is Tom Wheelwright, your host, founder, and CEO of WealthAbility. So it has been a long time since we have been in this much upheaval in the world right now. And it's economic upheaval, it's political upheaval. Um, it's uh, it's like we're like in crisis times. And uh, I remember, I still I have memory. I'm old enough to remember the '60s, and um, the, really the last time you know I, I I felt like we were in this kind of a crisis. Um, of course, that was back in Cold War. Plus, we had all of the civil rights issues and all that going on, and, and we're in a new type of crisis. We have an expert to discuss what's going to happen and why this is happening and how this is predictable. And this is um, my new friend Neil Howe who uh, uh, wrote the book Generations, which I read many, many years ago, and uh, wrote The Fourth Turning, and now has a new book uh, uh, out in uh, July. The Fourth Turning is here, what the seasons of history tell us about how and when the crisis will end. And uh, I, I, love, um, I love your work, um, Neil. It's, uh, it's really a treat to have you on here. Um, so thank you for coming. Would you give us, uh, and I'm fascinated by this too, just a little of your background and how you, how you started doing this research and why you started doing it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been a project to me for a long time, sort of, a, you know, a something, uh, not necessarily my day job, but it's something that I've, I've been working on for many years. Uh, uh, Bill Strauss and I, uh, Bill Strauss and I first started writing uh, a book called Generations, which I think you read. Uh, mm -hmm. It came out in 1991, a long time ago. We started writing it in the, in the late 80s. Uh, and we were intrigued by something that we noticed about generational differences. Uh, one thing we were very aware is that boomers were uh, growing, you know, by that they were still sort of young adults, you know, in the, in the 1980s. Right. And, and we were aware that we were growing up and growing older so much differently than our parents. You know, our parents were the, were the World War II generation, the GI generation, and the same age that they were uh, founding families and building battleships and, you know, doing, remaking the world. We were um, keeping our lives on hold, taking voyages inside ourselves. You know, they, they had D-Day, we had Woodstock. I mean, you get the idea, right? They're just completely different uh, uh, generational trajectory. And it wasn't obviously just us. It was everyone our age, you know, felt this difference. Right. Uh, and, and we wanted to look at how these generational differences had recurred in the past. Um, and we went back and looked historically and we're struck by something that really interested us. And that, the, that as we read more and more and looked back all the way back to the nation's founding and actually 
before we were a nation, you know, back in a colonial period in the 17th century, we found that Americans had always been aware of generational differences. They always talked about them uh, and that these generational differences came in a certain order. Certain kinds of generations always followed other generations. You know, after, after you have the boomer generation, which is filled with, you know, high idealism and sort of radical uh, defiance of their parents, you always got kind of a Gen X generation, kind of a pragmatic, you know, show me the bottom line, don't give me all that yuppie pretension, you know what I mean? A very different kind of generation, um, almost a reaction to that. And, 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 and we noticed other patterns as well. There are just certain kinds of sequences. We thought this was fascinating. And we found that it was linked to a rhythm in American history that historians have always been familiar with, but they've never really been able to explain. And that is why the great um, uh, nation redefining moments of our history, these great periods of civic upheaval when we remake the, the, our outer world of politics and economics, you know, when we go through these great conflicts and crises. And I'm thinking about, you know, the American Revolution, or you can go back even further to the glorious revolution in the colonies where the colonies all rebelled against, uh, against their governors. Uh, but then you move forward to the Civil War, you move forward to the Great Depression, World War II, and all of these are separated from each other by the length of a long human life, about 80 or 90 years, right? And they, they have a very definite kind of cadence. And here we are again, you know, Tom, another human life that's, that's kind of where we all are, right? And we notice something else as well, is that halfway in between these periods of sort of uh, outer world upheaval, we experience these world, uh, the, the, these, uh, these episodes of inner world upheaval, right? So you think about, you were talking about growing up in the 60s, right? That was what we call an awakening. And in fact, there have been these these awakenings have been so regular, historians number them. They call them the first great awakening, the second great awakening, the third great, you know, uh, and many people call the, the 60s and 70s America's fourth or fifth great awakening, uh, depending on whether you, you know you start your first count with uh with John Winthrop or with Jonathan Edwards, you know, in the 1600s or the 1700s. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? And each of these periods shapes a generation coming of age, right? And, and each of it is sort of superintended by an older generation that's running the country, right? And so there's this interesting mix. Well, we found that the similar kinds of generations are all sort of in the same phases of life every time one of these kinds of events happen. And right now, uh, really since the GFC, since 2008 and moving into the 2010s, now 2020s, we are in the crisis configuration generationally. Okay, right? so so if you would, can you what? So so you talk about four, right? Four yes. um, with within a, a, a you know a bigger cycle. That 80 to 90 year cycle, you're talking about basically 20 to 30 year cycles, right? So yeah, 20. Yeah, I'd say 20 to 25 year generational periods. Yes. Okay. So, so what are the, uh, can you, can you just for our listeners, just walk through the first three real quickly and then we'll talk about, well, we'll focus let's on talk the first about eras. And because you can talk about four turnings, which is sort of eras of history. And then you can talk about four kinds of generations that are coming along at each one of those. Right. 
Right. And I think the eras of history, we, 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 when we think about first turning, we're thinking of a period like uh, what many Americans can recall, the, uh, well, many older Americans can recall, and that is the American high after World War II. Uh, this is the period, uh, late 40s, early 60s, maybe the presidencies of Truman and Eisenhower and John Kennedy. It was a period in which institutions were perceived as strong, individualism was weak, there was a strong uh, uh, incentive to conform, and a great sense that these institutions we built were, were, were built with blood. I mean, you know, we went through World War II to get there. Mm -hmm. We went through the Great Depression. We never wanted to go back into it. So there was a real public conviction that this conformity and this kind of gathering our wagons, right, and, and, and forming a better world materially, physically, with these strong institutions was really something vital and important. Uh, uh, and, 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 and that was the first turning. This is what we call in, in our saculum, which is this 80, 90 day period, this, this, this long period, is sort of the spring, the spring season, right? We think of this as seasonal. Yes. The, uh, the summer season, the sort of the summer equinox, is the awakening, right? So suddenly you have now this new generation who were grown up after the war, after the crisis, has no memory of the crisis. They come of age and they lead all generations in sort of a rebellion, a resistance against all the social conformity, all the social discipline. Why do we have to restrain our needs and wants? You know, let's get rid of the Puritan ethic. One big thing at that time was, why don't we spend more and save less? You know, Walter Heller and a lot of the, the Keynesian economists who testified in Congress at that time. And, and certainly the, the kids on campus were saying the same thing. Why can't we indulge ourselves today, right? Uh, live for today. I think many uh, pop culture songs were, yep, for sure. uh, had that refrain. And... Um, and they led us through this rebellion from norms and traditions and conventions against um, the authority of the family, the authority of parents, against, you know, inherited gender roles. I mean, you name it, right? And it started in the culture, but it finally spread all the way to the economy. You know, by the 1970s, we had tax revolts. We had uh, the resistance against regulation. And I often remind people that in their own way, both the left and the right, you could say, both liberals and conservatives, joined in, you know, with this shedding of all this, um, all these restraints, right? Why can't we be a nation more of just individuals rather than being regimented into this kind of community? So they were successful. And by the time Reagan came into the White House, it was a big controversy, but he finally said it was okay. Uh, you know, we'll invite the Beach Boys to the White House. <laughs> I remember that. that was like a big deal. You know, suddenly Brock actually comes into the, the highest levels of government. I mean, today it would just seem, I mean, Beach Boys are on Muzak, right? They're right. on every point <laughs> we go into today. But at that time, I don't know if you recall, I that, uh, but it, was, it was a big deal. These things yep. were big deals back then. Um, and, you know, Clinton always used to, you know, have to, you know, kind of hedge about, you know, did he inhale or not? <laughs> These are still big. Anyway, we went on into uh, after after really after Reagan takeover, particularly a second election, which is really kind of a mood changer. Boomers are finally okay with the GI generation president, so long as he let people kind of you know run their own lives, different strokes for different folks, and all that. 
And that led to then the next, really the, the declining of the awakening. And it led to a new season, the fall season, right? And we call that the unraveling. And we always have an unraveling after an awakening. And that's a period which is much the opposite of a high, right? The first turning. It just as the fall is the opposite of the spring, right? We, we no longer invest, we consume. Uh, and this is a time when institutions feel weak and individualism feels strong. I mean, one of the things you can go into, and this is particularly big still about 10 or 15 years ago, you go into a bookstore and all the most upbeat books are about me, myself, and I. You know, I can do anything. I can remake the world. But everything about our social life, our community life, is all downbeat. You know, the end of the family, the end of government, the end of, you know, what, you know what I'm talking about. That sort of sense that who we are together is, uh, I don't even want to think about that, because that, that's all dysfunctional. Well, ultimately, these periods of... Um, of, uh, of individualism, high individualism, weak civic authority, uh, like we experienced in the 1990s. But we've had decades like that in our past. And a lot of what we do in our work is looking at decades that rhyme with each other going into the past. So one, one period that's very much like the 1990s was the, you know, cynicism and bad manners, and this sort of, you know, not caring too much about the nation or about government was the 1920s. Right. Uh, you know, it was rum runners and gangs and barnstormers and, you know, and no one cared about government yeah. and, and the people who led the country didn't really care too much about government. And then you go back to the 1850s, a period when America practically was tearing itself apart before the Civil War. And then you go back to the 1760s and so on. Anyway, you have these, these periods that remind us of that. And then, of course, every unraveling ends with a crisis, Right. And that's when we have to rediscover how to rebuild community institutions that work, rebuild our institutional life, and rebuild a sense of social solidarity. One of the biggest problems now that Americans face is the feeling of being alone, uh, not really knowing sure. how they fit into a broader community today. And it's painfully felt by young people today. I talk to millennials all the time. I talk to people in their 20s and 30s, and it's their biggest problem. They just don't understand who we are as a country. Uh, and it, it doesn't really matter whether they're, you know, think of themselves as on the left or the right. And they're they're losing trust in democracy. They're giving up in democracy. They think democracy is something that older people have invented. So we talk about everything, but then you you always find a way that nothing changes, right? You have governmental process or lawsuits or whatever, and nothing changes, and the old all get to keep what they have. <laughs> and we see declining business dynamism, declining ability for anything to change. And this is leading young people to really give up on that and think about broad new structural resets, you know, like a huge reset button. This is a sign that we're really in the crisis. Now we've had, um, we've had some huge uh, economic upheavals, uh, the, the, the Great Recession after the GFC, and then obviously during the pandemic, we've had a recent huge downdraft in markets. Uh, we'll see what happens to that. We've had now a, a, a huge new episode of inflation we're dealing with. Economic and uh, uh, volatility is something we always experience during crisis periods. Um, I often ask people, you know, what was the second worst recession of the 20th century? And people don't know until it was 1937. <laughs> what? What was 1937? Well, 
the stock market went down by more than 50%. And GDP went down by, you know, almost 10% again. And people don't even know about that because it was already such a horrible period. We had a huge, you know, coming back from the Great Depression. We went down again. It's a period of enormous volatility. And even by 1940, um, bond rates were the lowest they'd been, uh, uh, you know, mm-hmm. historically ever in American history until very recently. Uh, we had uh, that fears of deflation was still there. America felt like it was still in the Great Depression, you know, and this was a this was a more than a decade after Black Thursday. So um, it was it was a terrible decade. Uh, the the decade of the 1780s after the uh, American Revolution, you know, was was over it was a horrible time. It was probably the 30 percent decline in uh, in national income. Of course, everyone who uh, who are all the professionals and everyone who knew anything about how to run commercial life, they were mostly Tories. They all left. <laughs> and many Americans were moving back into the countryside to raise food because the cities could no longer provide for them. There was a reason why we, uh, we, we gathered to actually create a new national constitution at the end of the 1780s. This nation felt like it was completely falling apart and in miserable poverty. In our book, um, and you know, this is a way of a rambling way of getting you into the whole themes that we present. In in the next book we did, which was called The Four Turning, which came out in 1997. Uh, and at that time, of course, we were still in the unraveling. We were still in the Clinton era. Right. Uh, Monica Lewinsky was still on the horizon, hadn't yet happened yet. So, you know, that's kind of where we were back then. Um, we foresaw that the fourth turning was about uh a you know, a decade or a decade and a half away, you know, 10, 15 years away. And in fact, you know, we did have the the GFC later on and we foresaw that we were going to enter a crisis period. And I think this is why we've had such an amazing readership, you know, around the fourth turning and why I finally was persuaded by many people, many readers to come out with this new book called The Fourth Turning is Here. And in this book, we focus much more on these crisis eras uh, when Bill and I wrote The Fourth Turning back in 1997, it was still way out there. You know, we, we didn't know who our adversaries would be. We didn't know what the conflicts would be about. Red zone, blue zone had not yet been invented. It was way out there. Um, now it's here. We know what's, you know, what's going on. We, we've, uh, we, we, we saw, we saw uh, uh, you know, Trump versus Clinton in 2016 and that, that sort of political regeneracy, which happened at mm-hmm. that time, causing suddenly voter participation to rise in this country and suddenly total contrast to before where no one thought the government mattered. Now everyone knows it matters. <laughs> everyone knows it's vitally important who gets elected. So this is the first sign that we're in the fourth turning. Everyone gets refocused on who we are as a national community because we sense this enormous vacuum. Something has to replace it. Right now, we remain a bitterly divided country on that issue. Right. But that that is always a resolve by the time the fourth turning is over. And we expect that to happen uh, by the uh, end of the 2020s, the very early 2030s. That will be the end of it. This is an historical pattern, and it and it and it does sort of govern the the, the direction and tempo of our social life in the long term. Hey, if you like financial education the way I do, you're going to love Buck Joffrey's podcast. 
Buck's a friend of mine. He's a client of mine. He's a former board certified surgeon and he's turned into a real estate professional. So he has this podcast that is geared towards high paid professionals. That's who he's geared towards. So if you're a high paid professional, you're going, look, I'd like to do something different with my money than what I'm doing. I'd like to get financially educated. I'd like to take control of my money and my life and my taxes. I would love to recommend Buck Joffrey's podcast, which is called Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. I hope you join Buck on this adventure of a lifetime. So, so let me ask you the obvious question. Um, not to be too obvious, but all right, we're in 2023. Um, you're saying this is maybe another seven to 10 years. Um, in the last crisis period, we had a world war. So is, do you see that coming? I mean, do you see world war coming? Do you see, I mean, we've got Russia starting, we got Russia, we've got China on the, on the brink. Where do you think, where do you think it goes? And we have roughly half of Americans believe that civil war is imminent, you know, We do. I don't know how many polls that we've done a scene on that, right? Right. Um, so, and and that's the question. Fourth turnings always require a sense, and, and, and at their climax, a sense of total urgency and public mobilization, right? And 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 everyone suddenly gravitates toward a complete commitment to one side, right? Now, occasionally, it's complete commitment to two warring communities within the same nation. And when we saw that during the Civil War, we've actually seen that in uh, many fourth turnings in the past, uh, even in sort of, you know, in Anglo-American history going all the way back, which we, which we cover in some detail. And, and all fourth turnings involve that to some extent. Remember that before World War II, this country was bitterly divided over the New Deal. Right. If you were a conservative, you called the president Franklin Stalino Roosevelt. If you were on the left, you know, and you called it the red decade of the 30s. But if you were on the left, you called it the fascist decade, you know, because fascists were taking over democracies in many places around the world, right? So right. We, we forget that the, and, and this is actually one of the lessons that I bring up in the book, is that the question of whether the conflict, and it is always an organized conflict, because it has to bring out that sense of urgency. Very few things do that, Tom. Um, and one of the things I point out is that historically, it's often very unclear whether it's a, whether the crisis is mainly internal or external until late in the crisis. Uh, we, you know, Ameri a lot of people think of the American Revolution as an external crisis. You know, it was the, it was the colonists against the British. But most of the killing was colonist on colonist, right? I mean, the loyalties, it was, and people at the time referred to it as a civil war, not so much as a revolution. So we have to get out of the idea that generally these are external conflicts. They always involve a strong internal dimension. On the other hand, in a civil war, one side, usually the side that perceives itself as losing, always calls upon foreign powers to help it. So civil wars always turn into external wars. After all, the American patriots brought in the French. Right. If they had brought in the French, we wouldn't have won at Yorktown. In the civil war, the South were trying desperately to get France and Britain to come in on their side. 
you know, you can go back. Every crisis involves that, you know, other players coming in. And I, I, I spell out one of the scenarios in the book, uh, which is what happens if you have a civil conflict in this country that actually breaks out into a, an open war that causes our military to stand down around the world. First of all, imagine what that would do to the world, right? Imagine what would happen around the world if the if the U.S. power was not there. Uh, we we can just go through some of the scenarios, right? But also imagine what if one side invited in other players to help, right? You can imagine, I suppose the worst case scenario would be a world war in which the U.S. itself was not a major participant and 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 some of those global powers are actually fighting on U.S. soil. I mean, you can imagine some very, very nasty things if, if, if your mind inclines you to take you in that direction. On the other hand, you know, we see we see growing threats abroad, obviously, and um, that's no news. I think it's most useful to see it not so much as 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 carnage or a crisis in that sense of, of, you know, just horrible things happening as rather a need to refine community and a realistic way at which history accomplishes that task. Uh, and I, I remain in the book agnostic about whether or not the war is necessary. I simply observed that every fourth turning in America's past has had a total war. And total wars have only occurred during fourth turnings. You know, so, so you can draw from that what you will, Tom. Well, and, and then the the other thing, I mean, as you talk about these periods, you know, one of the obvious results has been you've had strong leaders emerge. You've you've had a George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, then you had Abraham Lincoln, then you had um, uh, FDR. Whether you like him or not, he was a strong leader, and you had strong leaders emerge. And right now, we're in this political era where we've got really potentially two weak leaders. Um, yes. you, you have Donald Trump and Joe Biden, neither one of which the majority of the population wants for a president. So, so, so what do you expect to come out of that? Do you expect a new leader to emerge later on? What do you, what do you expect yes. will happen? Yes, yes. I mean, we're talking about something that, you know, could well be in play until the very early 2030s. When we talk about 2030, you know, 2032, 33 is sort of a, Sorry, terminal point. But history suggests that fourth turning leaders are are made, not born. You know what I mean? I Got mean, uh, Abraham Lincoln had zero leadership. Right. I mean, he was a he was a lawyer. He was a very successful, fairly successful lawyer <clears throat> in in Illinois. But but he had he had, he had one term in Congress and not a very successful term uh, back during the Mexican American War. So. And as for as for Franklin Delano Roosevelt, he, no one thought much of him. They thought him kind of a lightweight. No one can. Everyone thought he was light years away from his incredibly dynamic, you know, uh, uncle. You know, a couple of generations removed, uh, uh, Theodore. Everyone knew Theodore was a born leader, a, a titan. You know, right. uh, intellectually in terms of an author and his just stamina, his leadership. No one thought that about Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, they thought he was just sort of a people pleaser, sort of an amiable guy. He pulled something very different, you know, from within himself and in response to what America was going through. And I think uh, the American people, when he died in, in April of um, 1945, you know, mourned him 
as they had no president since Abraham Lincoln. You know, I mean, that was that was the defining moment. Um, that is a lesson in fourth turnings. Leaders are made, not born, and the the public mood looks for that kind of leader, right? A- I think one thing that's impressive about you know Trump versus Biden is that American people, when you poll them, are universally unhappy about that choice. Yep. You know what I mean? I mean, no one likes really that the fact that, and that suggests there's a real instability about what's going on now. I I, I do not expect, um, I expect it to be very likely that we may not face either of those two candidates in 2024, uh, just due to things that may happen, right? Interesting. And so let's kind of turn it that you're, you talk a lot about economics. I mean, that's your 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 profession. My profession is uh, is in the economic world. Um, so, what happens? What is hap- What happens typically during that crisis period from an economic standpoint? I mean, it, obviously, there's a lot of personal hardship that's that's going on. It's going on right now. Uh, yeah. But but what are you expecting to have happen over the next ten years from an economic creative, standpoint? Creative destruction of inherited public policies. That's what happens. Um, there's a sense of sclerosis, you know, by the end of the seculum, right? After the first turning, second turning, third turning, nothing's been remade. You have this great sense of accretion. And finally, you have all of these policies which um, basically allow enormous economic rents by incumbents in every industry. I mean, you look around today, yeah. uh, we, 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 we pride ourselves on, you know, our high tech, you know, innovation. And it's true. You know, little little thing. This is the the fruit, really, of our third turning. You know, the nineteen nineties. All these little things that show up on our apps, things that we consume as individuals, we've gotten very good at, right? And uh, we can paper our walls with flat screen TVs, right? I mean, that kind of thing. We show high productivity, but in all things that we consume that make life what it is from a more social or public point of view, where we live what kind of community we live in, how we educate our kids, how we get our health care. Let, let me go through with you, Tom, just as a share of GDP. Take health care, first of all, you know, 18, 19% of GDP already, just there, right? And then let's add on housing and sort of community development, right? So the whole, that whole industry, then let's add in education, you know, K through 12, but also university education, um, and then let's just add in social services and a bunch of, we're easily up to 50% of GDP. That Those sectors which involve our public space, I would argue have zero and possibly even negative productivity growth over the past mm-hmm. 25 years. I mean, healthcare, I think is quite evidently negative productivity. It costs us more every year to pay for healthcare and life expectancy has been declining since 2014. I'm a demographer, I show this stuff, and it's it's not just COVID. Uh, right. This is lamentable. Um, and, and why do we allow this system that allows a patient and a doctor or hospital to agree with each other on some service that some third party is gonna pay for? I mean, <laughs> that's our system. And we call it a market-oriented system. I say, are you kidding? This was designed by some evil demon, right? And that's what we call healthcare. You know, if uh, if some drug comes out and someone says that it's 
have some modicum of improvement, so we should spend, you know, a trillion dollars more on it. That's what everyone's going to recommend, and no one feels like they're going to pay for it. Who designed this system, and why is it allowed to keep going? Well, the only way you change it, historically, is when suddenly you have to come up with new resources, right? Interesting. So so this is really interesting, because I just uh, returned from Europe uh, a, a little while back, and uh, and I'd lived in Europe in the 70s. And I found that their healthcare has been much improved since I lived there, much, much improved. And so, but I don't feel that way. I, 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 just like you say, I, I don't feel that way about the U.S. We have, our, ours is very expensive. It's hard, it's hard to get a doctor. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to actually do the basics now. And it's extraordinarily expensive compared to what you know we've complained right. about in other countries being socialized medicine. So, um, but, the, what, but, but a lot what's of going this, on there? But a lot of this is just capture. You know, you know, you got these enormous hospitals. So you got all these doctors. But we're the only country in the world that leaves all of the standards of care in the professions themselves. I mean, if you're right. back surgery, you get to say what constitutes you know, a, a viable uh, health improvement. No one else gets to look at it. You just get this aside. And again, you're going to decide with a patient with someone else's money, uh, you know, to spend $150,000 going in and doing whatever they do. This is crazy. How did we get here? And and why is it that we don't do it the right way? It's interesting. Mansur Olson did a book called The Rise and Fall of Nations. Uh, and he wrote this back in the 80s. He asked the question, why was it that Germany and Japan, after the war, leapfrogged ahead of so many of the right. democracies that won in terms of productivity? And he's pointing to exactly what I'm talking about now. Their crises completely wiped out everything that was there before so they could construct a new system, a right. fresh system, which allowed everyone to, to compete and actually pursue efficiencies. You see what I mean? They started fresh. And I will say this about the fourth turning. You look at nature, right? Um, you need, you know, forests need wildfires occasionally, yep. right? Rivers need floods. Um, we need these catastrophic, event, uh, catastrophic, uh, catastrophic events occasionally for nature to work properly. Society is the same way. <laughs> and... I, and I'm just observing this. I'm not saying it's good or bad. You know, we constantly talk about is it good or bad or is this moral or immoral. I'm just saying this is what's required. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying I observe this. I'm an historian. I take a very analytical point of view. Um, I'm not really, um, I'm not really into you know, you know, being a champion of the blue zone or the red zone. That's just not what my writing is about. Um, uh, what I'm doing is trying to give a very objective description of how society works. This does seem to be how society works. And what you do is you're able to then clear out what doesn't work and suddenly now create an opportunity to create new institutions to really invest in the future and actually tilt back the playing field toward the young. And I think that's what we're, that's what our world really needs. I see all around America today, you know, our budget is completely crowded out, as you know, by senior entitlements. I mean, that's right. we, 
we, we, we have all these budget deals and so on that are dealing with the 15% of the federal budget, which isn't already grabbed by payments to creditors or payments by, you know, entitled recipients. Yep. We have this tiny little share left that goes to national parks and oceanographic institute and everything. And we keep clamping down on that because we can't bring ourselves to touch the rest. The fourth turning will be the reason why we touch the rest because we need it to survive as a country. If you see where I'm going with this, Tom, you, you, you need something that really grabs the public's attention, and this is what does it. Um, and we saw that in the Great Depression, which actually I would argue is really a great prequel for what the nation had to go through to get to actually tool up for World War II. It, it was actually almost great that we had the Great Depression before World War II, because suddenly we got very good at having uh, uh, a single national authority start organizing the country into producing a lot quickly from the top down. And anyone familiar with our record production of capital ships and right, and, unbelievable, it, it was incredible. We we outproduced uh, by several times all of the Axis powers combined. No one thought that was possible, but we did it because someone cleared away the playing field and we were able to move ahead. Got it. Got it. This so, is, yeah. Go ahead. So, so my, my question is, so we've been talking about a lot of macro, yes. uh, which is really kind of the focus, but from a micro standpoint, then if you're talking about, you, you look at, okay, so what do I do? So, so how do we cope individually? How do you cope as a business? How do you cope as an investor um, over the next 10 years of crisis? Um, you know, the obvious diversification, um, uh, looking less toward things that have worked in the past, which is sort of, uh, you know, high beta momentum um, uh, and high volatility stuff and stuff that has no relationship to the community, the public sector, uh, that, that only exists in an environment in which the community is ineffective. A, a great example of all those things would be crypto, <laughs> which is one of the reasons why crypto, I think, is crashing because in this environment, for just the reasons I specified, right? It, 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 it makes no sense. Um, look instead for things that the country will need longer term. And, and obviously I'm looking toward longer, what we today call the investment of the world, longer term you know, right. strategies. Uh, two, two sectors which have recently been you know, shunned, um, I would say manufacturing and materials look really good to me, right? Manufacturing among other things because the entire world is now rearming. Yeah, and I'm just not talking about the United States. I'm talking about the entire. Right. Look at Japan; oh, yeah, it's sure. going up to two percent of GDP. Right. Poland is going up to four percent. The entire world is rearming. You look at China. You look at everybody, right? So this is the exact opposite from the '90s when the world was dearming or disarming after after the fall of the Soviet Union. I think um, I think energy is going to be another great bet. Uh, because we have uh, we've sort of disarmed ourselves on the energy front, and now we're going to have to retool ourselves, right? I mean, energy is the great multiplier of uh, of, uh, of of human mechanical power uh, for so much of the world. It, energy is not mainly a story of the United States and Europe; it's a story of the rest of the world, and we right. all know what they're going to want. I think um, uh, the things to avoid are nominally denominated assets. I'm talking about, you know, treasury bonds and bonds in general, things that are denominated, you know, as a percent of a nominal coupon that you get, um, because we are headed for, a, for a, a period of higher inflation overall. 
I think Jerome Powell is very serious about getting inflation under control. But once events speed up, uh, that's going to supersede what he wants. And I, I do think that inflation as a longer term bet is one way that we can get out from under. It's one way we've pursued very often in the past to get out from under a crushing uh, level of, of uh, government indebtedness in the United States. Right. You know, from from the beginning of the GFC to today, we have amassed more debt as a share of public policy than we did during World War II. And it's amazing. We're back up at the same level, just a little bit over 100% of GDP. And we didn't fight a war, right? Right. But, but you know, here we are. And the question is, is that as you look ahead, it's even going to get worse because of all the claims that we have. We have an aging society. Fewer children are coming along. And you have this enormous bow wave of boomers are retiring. They're going to get older. They require enormous amounts of health care. You know, and then you just tie that into the dysfunction we already see in, the, in our healthcare system. So we have, we have, if you look at projections, and I do this every year uh, for my clients, I walk people through the, the CBO 30-year projection. And they're completely uh, out of alignment, Tom. I mean, you know, there's no way we can get this, you know, back together again, particularly if interest rates start going up around the world. Inflation is one way to ease the burden. I think it's also going to require cutting back, obviously, you know, it's going to require less spending, more revenue, all of that. And by the way, during a time of crisis, all that happens. We spend less on ourselves and we, uh, we start confiscating revenue. And that's something for upper end people to think about. I mean, I hate to say it, but every crisis that happens, right? We, we find ways of uh, financial repression. You're locked into certain assets you wish you could get out of, but you can't. And uh, you find taxes are suddenly springing up. Yep. So this is something, if you're thinking about a fourth turning scenario, that's definitely something you have to think about. Um, I would say one last thing is that people often ask me about advice, you know, financial advice, you know, people are thinking ahead, and particularly for younger people, people in their 30s and 40s, what should I invest in? How should I look at my future? I would say one thing to think about very hard is two things. You know, one is, would I, would I do okay in, in a world of, of much more uh, parsimonious public benefits, right? I mean, if that were cut off, how would I do? But the other is this, People, as they get older, one thing they need more than anything else is care, right? We talk right. a lot about long-term care insurance. There's never going to be a good market for long-term care insurance. I mean, I don't care. I mean, I've, I've followed this debate for a long time. There's too much moral hazard. You know what I mean? And there's too much negotiating asymmetry between the purchaser and the seller. There's never going to be a good market for long-term care insurance. And I come back to this. The only good long-term care insurance out there is really close relationships with your family. And I, and I often tell people, if you really want to think about your future, think about your relationships with your family. That's ultimately going to mean a lot more than God knows how much wealth you can accumulate. And I, and I mean that in a variety of ways. And partly I mean it just purely in a material sense, right? Who is going to take care of you? I love it. I love it. Um, any, uh, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much, Neil. Um, any final words for our, our listeners and our viewers? Um, uh, any, any, any uh, tidbits of advice or thoughts? I, I would just say, again, my last word would simply be this. Uh, when people think about the idea of a fourth turning um, as, as being a, a, 
a, a stressful time, a dangerous time, a perilous time. We live in a nuclear armed world, after all. I think, what are we, nine, nine nuclear armed powers? Probably when Iran goes, that'll be 10. It's a very dangerous world and it's a very dangerous time and, I'm, and, and, and it will be stressful and it will be something that will mobilize us as a nation. But I will say on the other hand, it is a vast opportunity. It's an opportunity for America to remake itself as a community, be reborn as a people. And most of all, it gives young people a chance to rebuild the world again. And, and when I talk to young people, that's, you know, that, that would be just an enormous difference in their lives, something that challenged them. Uh, I think they need the challenge. And um, I think the challenge of, of creating a, a, a new sense of community in America, com uh, community that works, actually works, is um, would be good for them and good for the country. Uh, every one of the great, you know, think about the golden ages in American history, they all always follow crises. So if you're looking forward to a golden age, you know, America looking through a great gate of history to a golden age, well, that's, the, you know, the crisis is the toll you pay. But on the other side, could be a period that we could all take a great sense of accomplishment in. I love it. So again, um, the, the book is The Fourth Turning is Here, um, out in July. Uh, our guest has been Neil Howe, the author, and so appreciate it, Neil. And just remember that, you know, we're, we looked at a big macro uh, view today, um, but that macro is important to understand what we do from a micro level. And when we, when we get this broader um, view of things, then we always end up with way more money and way less tax and a lot less stress. I'll add that too. So thanks a lot, Neil. And thanks everyone. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. To learn more, go to wealthability.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. dot <laughs> com.